God's people said, what a blessing to be able to do what scripture tells us to do, exhorts us to do, and sing together and to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What a blessing as well to to walk as we have this morning, as it were, from the, the throne room, beholding our holy God, remembering what we are, who we are. It's a wonderful thing that we're saved by grace, but we're sinners. Christianity has a tendency, because of our human frailties, to be live in the extremes. And either we're just, you know, constantly, oh, woe is me, and, you know, kind of Isaiah 6 is on the woe is me, I'm undone, which is appropriate at times. Or we're just, you know, like the little dog Renee and I saw coming to church this morning. I mean, he was having a good morning. And he was just happy, 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 happy. That's not real life. There's a balance. And it's good for us to be reminded that he, Jesus Christ, was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for us. I don't know where you found that. It's a 19th century, I guess, text and, and music. But man, powerful. But we don't have to live there, right? We can rejoice in the blood of Jesus Christ that he freely shed for all of us. We're going to live in that, uh, that wonderful truth a little bit this morning. And, and that's a blessing that we get to do that. It is always a blessing to gather with believers, to worship God, to celebrate the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Obviously, as we conclude our service together here in just a little bit, we'll have the privilege of uh, participating together and partaking of the elements of the Lord's Supper. As Paul writes that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the disciples and he were gathered in that upper room and he instructed them to make a practice of this observance until he comes. So for 2,000 years, just about, Believers have done this. It's alluded to often in the epistles. But there is coming a day when this too will be no more. Because we'll be with him in his presence for all of eternity. The purpose is simple. To remind us. Of the great love of God. The obedient self-sacrifice of Jesus. It's good to be reminded. It needs to be stated. There, there is no salvific power. There is no power of salvation. There is no impartation of grace by partaking of these elements. It is not a sacrament. It's an ordinance. It's a memorial. It's a glorious memorial. The work has already been done by Jesus Christ. 
But again, knowing our frailty, knowing we need the reminder, he wonderfully, graciously, omnisciently provided for us this opportunity. As Paul writes to the believers at Rome, he's bringing to a close here a section of the letter that encompasses what we've been in the last, uh, that really this whole summer, chapter 6, 7, and 8. And as a result of justification that comes through confession of sin and belief in the substitutionary death of Jesus, the believer then begins the process we call sanctification. It's a process that's fraught with challenges because we still wrestle with the old man. The flesh. We're sinners. Yes, sinners saved by grace, but we're still sinners nonetheless. And the amazing gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit, as he's referenced already in chapter 8, verse 9, it makes the sanctification process possible. By that, I'm not saying that our salvation is not settled. There are three pieces of sanctification. There is that part of sanctification that is, that is settled at the moment of salvation. Positionally, as far as God sees it, positionally sanctified, set apart because of the blood of Jesus Christ. But then we have that growing process. We call it progressive sanctification. And that's where, we, that's where we are right now. That's what we're living with. That's what Paul dresses a great deal here in, in these chapters. And, and, and when we get to chapter 12, he's going to get real practical on the application side of that. And we look forward to, we yearn for that day when we will be permanently, eternally sanctified. But it's a process. Paul begin, or began, I should say, this final section in chapter 8 with that wonderful exclamation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And the reader's been reminded of the many facets of the active work of the Holy Spirit. The privilege of being able to cry out, as we even just sang here this morning, Abba, Father. As he references in verse 15, that present hope in which we live of the future glory that's coming, it encourages us, it strengthens us. We looked at that in verses 18 to 25. Last week, we looked at what we know, what we know of God's divine and sovereign purpose for us. It gives us confidence, it brings to us comfort. God's not making it up as he goes along. He has a divine plan for your life. And this morning, we open God's word and we look together at the next few verses. I'm going to read the remainder of this chapter, verses 31 to 39 for us in just a moment. It's going to be a two-part message. Uh, we'll conclude it next Sunday. But I want you to follow along with me as we kind of get the, the full picture here. And then we'll, we'll take it in, in a couple bites uh, together. But... These verses here as chapter 8 concludes, it's one of those, John MacArthur says, he calls these verses a hymn of security. And so just to read verses 31 to 34, it'd be like singing the first two stanzas and leaving the, you know, 
the chorus in the fourth stanza hanging out there. We don't want to do that. So we'll read it all together. We'll look at it over these next couple times together. Romans 8 verse 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How, he, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring anything, any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure... That neither, pres- neither, things, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an exclamation he ends with. This morning, we're going to look at just verses 31 to 34 and it's kind of a Q&A. Paul's posing these introspective questions. And they all have answers. They all have glorious answers. But it is profitable to do this. It is profitable to consider the questions. And to think as well about the answers. You know, the powerful thing about a question it makes us stop and think. At least it should. I have a tendency sometimes, especially if I'm really into a conversation with somebody and, you know, there's been kind of this progression going along of, you know, we'll, we'll start, person will ask a question or, or, and I have this way of assuming what the question is that's coming and kind of jumping in. Probably drives Pastor Josh crazy on Tuesday mornings, but he's gracious about it. And we do that. But questions are a powerful, powerful tool in our lives. I've got a dear friend. He, he says this about, about questions and about our life and discipling and, and so on and child rearing, a lot of ways in which it can be uh, applied. Questions stir the conscience. Accusations harden the will. We need to learn to ask more questions. And Paul's really doing that. He's, he has given just really kind of just a boatload up to this point of doctrinal truth. Right? I mean, we, you know, you go all the way back into the opening remarks and those first few chapters he lays out, for all have sinned. No question. 
takes us back to Adam and the doctrine of original sin, but then, of course, says, you know, by one man sin entered in the world, but through Jesus Christ, there's justification. Condemnation through Adam, justification through Jesus Christ. And it's just been one glorious truth after another, one, this big progression and he gets here to the end, what is really the end of a section. Chapter 9 begins another section, uh, chapters 9, 10, 11. And so he poses this string of seven questions. We're not going to look at them all this morning. But, you know, he could have written it. The Holy Spirit could have directed him to write it this way. Think about this. God is for us. Nobody can stand against us. He gave Jesus for us. He'll give us whatever we need to be like him. Those are thrilling statements, right? I'll take that. But instead, he poses them all as questions. And to do that, it gives us the added benefit of making us slow down a little bit. Causing us to pause, to consider the truth and really the profound impact it has on us. So we'll look at these first several quickly this morning and I trust it will also encourage us and that we can reflect on all that God has done for us and in us and through us and the Holy Spirit. Pastor Josh reminded us through the order of service this morning. We worship a holy God. We're sinful creatures. He provided the sacrificial Savior. And so we will respond with grateful confidence and praise. First question that Paul poses here immediately drives us to the practical applications and the implications of the truth that has been declared. He says... How should we respond to all of this? What then shall we say to these things? Everything that we've talked about. So what do you think? How do you respond to all that? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with it? How are you going to let it impact your lives? I mean, there's a lot in that question, isn't there? What then shall we say to these things? Obviously, all these things that have come before. The truths of the gospel are not for our intellectual benefit alone. There's to be an application. There's to be a difference made in our lives. God never intended for us to be, you know, plodding along in our life and one day intersect with the gospel. And wow, that was an event. And then we just keep plodding along in our lives. No, that intersection is to change us. It's to revolutionize our lives. It's, it's to make us look at things, consider things totally differently than before that moment. We go through life, some of you came to know the Lord as your Savior as an adult, and prior to that, you, you very likely may, may have a testimony that on some levels 
would, would kind of communicate the fact that, yeah, I mean, before that, it was just all about me. But when I realized who I was, I needed Jesus as my Savior, I accepted him as Savior, I confessed my sins, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, I mean, I still got to go to work, I still need to make a living, still need to provide for the family, so on and so forth. But there's a different motive. There's a different perspective. There's a different outlook. The gospel is not just for us to keep it up here in our head. It impacts our heart. It affects our lives. And the question, as it's posed, expects a response. What then shall we say? It's almost like through the miles, Paul's waiting for a response. He's writing this from Corinth, and it's you know, going to get bundled up. It's going to be taken to Rome and, and read. But it's almost like he gets to this point, and he's like, so what do you think? What are you going to do about it? See, these are things... All these truths. These are things of which believers should talk openly. These truths should dominate our conversations. They, they should fuel our evangelism. These, these, this just isn't Sunday talk. For the child of God, this isn't just stuff, well, yeah, you know, from Sunday mornings, from whenever we arrive until whenever we leave, you know, whatever that time frame is, you know, we kind of have these themes. It's more than that. It should be. We, we should, as we interact with brothers and sisters in Christ throughout a week, we should talk about these truths. They, we should encourage one another with these truths. That's what it talks about, encouraging and edifying one another. But should they not also be things that we can talk about and drop into conversation when we have those opportunities with coworkers, with neighbors, with unsaved friends, family members, whatever the case may be? I mean, we're just, you know, we just go around. If we talk about the gospel, we're just like seeding and planting and watering everywhere we go. You know, again, Paul... Did he not open the letter with his own response to this question of all that God had done for him? All that he had seen God do, all that God had, in the ways God had used him. Does he not open up the letter and really the response, his response to this question. So what do I say to all these things? He says, I'm not ashamed of the power of the gospel. I tell everybody I can find. I talk about it everywhere I go. So he's certainly not a, you know, do as I say, not as I do. He's already given us the example on how we should be answering this question. Now, there aren't too many of us, myself included, or we're not like Paul, right? <laughs> he was uniquely gifted in many ways. But that doesn't exempt us from doing what God's called us to do. 
Because you, as God's child, you are equipped to answer this question. It demands a response. I think if this was like a classroom setting and Paul was up front, I mean, he was a great teacher in his own right, and he's sitting there in front of the class, and we're all, all the pupils. I have a feeling he was the kind of guy who would say, so, so what do we say to about all this? And he would just sit there and look at us until somebody had enough guts to raise their hand and get the ball rolling on the answer. <laughs> because he wants that application. Second question serves to further strengthen the confidence in the heart of the believer. And he's not casting doubt. It's a, it's a bit of a rhetorical question. It's one of those questions that's kind of, you know, asked in the absurdity. Because based, again, what he's already said about all these things that come before, he's not casting doubts on, is God for us? He's, you know... If he is, I don't know. It's not obviously what he's saying. The context is clear. But he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? The believer lives in a sinful world. It's letters written to first century believers. And yes, the persecution is mounting. The pressures are becoming intense. There were a lot that were against them. There are a lot that we feel like are against us. You may live in a, a, a world wherever you go to work or maybe you're, you know, the, the sphere in which you live, you, you may be reminded often of the antagonism that the world has to the things of Christ. There may be days where you would look at this question and go, let me just tell you who's against us. The pressure and the presence of sin that surrounds the believer is immense. In our frailty, we can often find ourselves at the point of desperation and frustration and we just kind of throw our hands up in despair. The temptation to give up is real. It's real. Paul's question puts everything into perspective, though, doesn't it? Because he says, if God has your back, and he does, then what chance does any enemy really have? You see, the Holy Spirit, when we read this as a believer, when you read this question as a believer, it ought to be again, it ought to be, well, I mean, I know what he's saying there. He's not questioning God's power. Because that's the Holy Spirit confirming the truth in your heart, doing exactly what he was given to do. That if, that first part of the question really could be understood as a statement of confidence followed by the question, since God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, that's the understood, based on everything that we've just heard about justification and salvation and, and so on. Since God is for us, who really can be against us? And you start breaking this up, and he says, if God is for us. 
That's, that's a wonderful little expression. Maybe the Holy Spirit this morning, right here in this moment, is taking that little, that little phrase and bringing it to your heart. And, and God is saying, look, I want you to understand something. I am for you. I'm for you. It, it doesn't mean, that, that word, again, and we would like just glance over it, but it really carries in the original, it carries with it this idea of being surrounded by God. It's not what he is saying. It's not that, you know, God's somewhere back there. And he'll show up eventually if we yell and panic loud enough. Yeah, I mean, if, if like it really gets bad and, and, you know, I set off flares and I scream and holler, jump around, wave my arms, whatever. He'll see me and he'll come running. That's not what it says. The expression, the phrase it is communicating to the believer, since God is right here with you in the moment. And he's for you in this pressure, in this moment, in this trial, in this temptation, in this struggle. We all know there's no shortage of enemies that Satan can deploy to attack your confidence and your faith. What has just been shared should be sufficient to repel any and all of those attacks. That's why he said, so what do you think about all of this that I've shared? You live in that truth and it ought to just, again, here comes the attack. Yes, poof, repelled. Here comes another, poof, repelled. Because since God is for us, who? can really come against us with any effect, with any impact. Third question, the next question in the string calls the reader to remember what he was, what he now is, and so then what can be expected. He says here in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Question, how, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now think about this in the perspective in which Paul has already given it to us in all of the preceding, what we have as chapters, you know, paragraphs, pages, whatever. The father did not spare even his own son. Got two of them. Can't imagine. The father did not spare his own son. But he gave him for us. When did that gift come? After we earned it? After we proved ourselves worthy? No. The gift was given when we were his sworn enemy. 
when we were sinners. To be a friend of the world is to be an enemy with God. And when we were his enemy, he did not spare his own son. Those who are gathered in Rome, it's a, it's a mixed group. There are certainly Gentiles, but there are also Jews that are gathering there in Rome in that church. Every Jewish mind, you would think, this would have caused their mind to run back to what we have as Genesis 22, right? Abraham, Isaac, Abraham willing to offer Isaac. An amazing passage, I was reading it again this morning as I was just going over my notes and just refreshing my mind on it, but... The son of promise waited a century, literally. And the son of promise is given, and then all of a sudden, when that son is, is reaching an age of vitality, and, and, and boy, you can see the future is bright for this one, and the voice of God comes to Abraham, and he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Yeah, I know who he is. I know what he is, God's saying. And he comes to him and he, he gives him that order. And the Bible says, so Abraham rose early the next morning. That has always blown my mind. I will get right on that after. And the list just keeps getting longer. Right? I mean, we do that with things that God wants us to do that aren't nearly compared to what he's asking Abraham to do. And the Bible tells us that the very next day, so Abraham rose early in the morning and headed that direction to do what God had instructed him to do. And they get there and they see the mountain in the distance and Abraham looks at the men who are traveling with him and he says, you guys wait here, because I and the boy, the lad, are going to go yonder and worship and will return. What faith, what obedience, what a picture of worship. Man, we have a convoluted idea of what worship is in so many of our lives and churches. Worship is about what God has said to do. We're going to go yonder and worship. And of course they head that way and the, the question's obvious. Isaac had, had seen sacrifices done before and stuff like that. And he, he's looking around taking inventory. Um, Pop, I, I know you're, you're kind of up in years and stuff. And I know you're a list maker and such. But I, I think we forgot something. <laughs> here's the wood. Here's the fire. Um. We're missing a lamb. Praise God this young man knew a lamb was essential. But he also knew it was missing. And the answer comes back from a faith-filled heart. God will provide for himself a lamb. 
and he did. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. Is there any greater proof of love? To the Gentile mind, the, the stories, no doubt, in the early church were, were certainly including what happened at Pentecost when all of this started. Peter's sermon there is recorded for us in Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know. Don't try to deny it. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He's driving home the same point. He who did not spare his own son gave him up for us all. If he would do that when we were his enemy, what then should we expect when we are his child? He's already told us we can run to him and call him Daddy, Abba. If he would do this when we were his enemy, what else would he do when we are his child? And he says there, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is not prosperity gospel. This is not whip out your wish list. This is not new car, boat, camper time. It's much bigger than that. It's much better than that. Is it not as the hymn so beautifully states, the grace of God has reached for me and pulled me from the raging sea. And I am safe on the solid ground. The Lord is my salvation. Who is like the Lord our God? What more should a child expect? Now admittedly, this clause could have two interpretations. Okay, the all things, it can either refer... To any sin that's ever been committed, you say, Pastor, you don't know what I have done. Nope, don't need to. You don't confess to me. God does, and he says, if you will confess, I will forgive. That's it. Or it can refer to everything needed to grow in grace and be like Jesus, which he has previously stated. Why, do all of, why can I say that all of these things work together for good to them who are called by according to his purpose? Because it's according to his plan to be like Jesus. And so he is saying here, there is nothing to prevent you from fulfilling God's plan for your life for his glory. There is no sin that you have committed that is so big of an anchor that you're just not going to be what you ought to be for God.
There is no struggle too powerful that you can't grow in grace and be like Christ. Whichever it is, they're both equally amazing. Once the enemy, now the child. What would the father not give? Fourth and fifth questions quickly give us a glimpse into the courtroom of heaven. Satan is known to be the quote-unquote accuser of the brethren. John refers to him in such a way in Revelation chapter 12. We know he played this role to the max from, you know, the record of Job. Believers may experience doubt about their security in spite of what Paul had just written. We noticed last week that the word glorified is stated in the past tense. It is as good as done. But there still may remain some of these lingering doubts. That is not how God wants us to live. So he says, in these two final questions, again, as it is, as we, we like find our place in the back row in the courtroom of heaven. And he says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? In our present society, it seems though we are being continually reminded, right, of the processes of a criminal charge and an indictment. Prosecutor gathers evidence, presents it before a panel, usually 16 to 23 people, citizens that are appointed for that purpose. They sometimes serve for weeks, a month or more, known as a grand jury. If at least a supermajority, either two-thirds, three-fourths of it, agree, then in, in a case, a, 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 an indictment can be issued. The proceeding is not about determining guilt, but it's about Probable cause. But see, he's cutting this off at, at the pass, as it were, because, I mean, that like terrifies us. My goodness, would I even be, my name be brought up in the presence of a grand jury? I mean, talk about sleepless nights, right? I'm not asking, don't raise your hands. But he's heading that off. The Apostle John deals with it when he writes to the early church as well. Again, I, I reference Peter at Pentecost. I reference John here because what it tells us, it gives us this answer from the very beginning, literally the first day of the church, New Testament church as we know it, until the close of the first century and the canon is closed with the writing of the Apostle John. This issue is being preached. It's not changing and morphing. In 1 John chapter 2, John writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, who, uh, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What words? He's our advocate. He is the propitiation, the payment. Paul's already declared this truth. In this letter, back in Romans chapter 3, again, we live in verse 23, but don't forget what comes in verses 24 and 25. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Based on the work of Jesus Christ, God declares the believer to be justified, to be declared innocent. Does this not short-circuit the proceedings? That's why he says, who can even bring a charge? Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and because of his blood, it can be stated, this case has been settled. There's no guilt here. You have no standing to even bring a charge. Bringing the discussion full circle now, hitting back to verse 1, the question he poses as he closes or, or kind of starts to bring it to a close and where we will we'll finish here this morning. Verse 34, who is to condemn? See how they're, they're related. I mean, you know, who can even bring a charge? Well, if you can't even bring a charge, then who is to condemn? One has to happen first. Paul's already declared, there is no condemnation. The Spirit knows, though, how weak our faith can be. And the struggle for many is real, and the answer is in the gospel, and that is how the answer comes. Because the answer is always in the gospel. It's a simple statement of the good news. Christ Jesus died. More than that, he was raised. And he's at the right hand of God and he doesn't sit idly by while accusations are hurled. No, he is present active tense. He is interceding for us. Go ahead and just have a hallelujah fit. I mean, think about that. The past and present work of Jesus. Let him try to bring a charge. Dismissed out of hand. He died. He's risen. He's interceding. Yes, there are questions, but there are also answers to each and every one. As we partake of the elements, we can do so remembering that these questions are all answered in and through Jesus. I want to invite you to take just a couple moments bow your head to prepare your heart. Paul instructs that in 1 Corinthians 11. Thank God for his great love, giving us his son Jesus. Ask for his forgiveness, knowing that Jesus is interceding. In just a few moments, I'll close our time in prayer and we'll partake of the elements, but this is your time. You prepare your heart based on this truth to receive the elements.